So it's great. Thanks, Margaret, for leading us through so far. Um, We're going to be looking at that passage in the Bible uh, from the book of Revelation that uh, Margaret just read to us. And if you want to follow it through, it's on page 1235 of the church uh, Bibles nearby. So uh, you will be uh, aware if you've been here before. If you haven't, it's great that you can uh, be with us. But what we're doing in these few weeks uh, are looking into, into some Bible passages right from the beginning of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It, it begins with seven messages, seven letters from Jesus Christ uh, to seven different local churches. Um, You remember that John, the Apostle John, who was a disciple, has this vision of Jesus Christ who speaks to him very clearly and gives him this amazing book, which we call the Revelation, mainly because that's the first word of the book in its original, um, and indeed in English, the Revelation. And John gets this message and is told by Jesus to to write it down and send it round to these seven uh, local churches, these seven churches uh, that were in Asia. That's the kind of Western Turkey as we have it today. So these uh, original seven congregations get to read the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, before anyone else. It was written to them in the first century. They get hold of it, probably a a courier, as I said last week, not in a white van, but on a horse maybe, or or a donkey caravan or something. It gets on on the road, the circular route that went round that area into these different seven congregations. And each of them here, actually not just their letter, not just the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, but all of it. So that's going to be quite an event for them. So that's what's happening, and we're looking at each of these. It was written to these seven. It was written in the first century, but there's a, a, a lot that we can grab from them today. We're looking at each of them, and we're seeing Jesus' perspective on each church. It's like a kind of a re- review, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know, like an Ofsted or, almost. You know, something that, although perhaps I shouldn't say that, that will immediately send shivers up the spines of uh, some of you here. Something that that was unexpected, a a, a review, a report, some feedback, Um, if you like the mystery worshipper. Somebody who knew, not just that they'd been there and seen what was going on, but this is Jesus, the head of the church, the Lord of the church, giving feedback on each of these uh, seven congregations. And they all hear all of it. And uh, as we read it, as we seek to understand it, we can see bits of ourselves in all of these uh, letters. Well, the, today's one is to the church at Sardis. Um, there it, you might be able to see that. Can you see that on, on the map? Sardis is just there, if I've got it right. Um, there it is. Oh, if you're looking at the other map, that's not much good to you, but hopefully you can see it there. I can see it. That's good. So that's where it is, um, and that's the, the, the group that gets it. Sardis, what was it like? Well, we know quite a bit about it from archaeology and from research and so on. It was a very wealthy city. It had a, a quite a big and glorious uh, um, history. In fact, it, it was, uh, you know, had been the center of an old empire. Three or four hundred years ago, there was an empire in that place with a very well-known king who was fabulously wealthy. The, the city was in a strategic location it was uh, well defended, it was on trade routes, and, and it had done very, very well for itself in the past, extremely well. In fact, some people think that the, that the first usage of any kind of coin 
um, is from Sardis at the time of this king, this emperor, about 500 years BC. Now, of course, we don't know whether that is true because all it means is that there were a lot of coins at Sardis and we found some because there could be some even older somewhere else that we haven't found. But the point is, there was a lot of money around Sardis 500 years before. It had been a wealthy town, a great city, had a great reputation. It was, yeah pretty good place had this river running through it or or, or, uh, and that's been described in some of the literature as providing gold it could be a symbol of somebody saying like the Thames just flows with gold because of the city of London on it or it could mean that there was actually gold in the river that people panned and that you know was partly the source of its wealth but the point is it was very um, influential or it had been very influential it was a a key city the old city was set up on a, a kind of big hill with steep cliffs. Uh, and on the top of it, there was the Acropolis. And that had become a fortress at one time and another. And down in the valley below, the, the rest of the city kind of carried on its life. That fortress, because of the cliffs, was considered to be completely impregnable. The cliffs were so steep and they felt so secure in it that actually they didn't even bother to defend it. Uh, And twice in its history, uh, because of that, it had been taken by invaders had come in and found a way up the cliffs and taken the city twice. The uh, Persians did it once and the Greeks did it about 200, 300 years later. Um, there's a story about why, why they did it. Uh, well, I'll tell, tell you briefly because I think it's quite funny. But a soldier, apparently, uh, according to the literature, looked over the top of the cliffs and his helmet fell off uh, and it fell down the cliffs. And, and he went to get it back. But he didn't know that the Greeks were in the area and a Greek soldier saw him go, saw where he went, and then and later that night led the whole army up the cliffs into the place. And that's how um, Antiochus Epiphanes it was, if you're interested, captured that city. So you've got the picture, it, it, that's, their kind of, that's their kind of background. They pitched for a very key bid, key bid in 26 AD. You know, it's a bit like pitching for the World Cup or, or the Olympics. They pitched, pitched for um, having the biggest temple to Caesar worship at the time anywhere. So, um, Sardis wanted that. Uh, they failed their bid. And actually, Smyrna got it, and that's why the church to the letter, the letter to the church at Smyrna, is all about their suffering and being at the centre of Caesar worship, as we have seen. Why didn't they get the bid? Because everybody knew in the ancient world that Sardis had been pretty good once, but they were as soft as could be. You know, they were just a load of people who were living quietly on their previous glories. And there's references in the ancient literature where that was their reputation around. Now, there are a bunch of of Christians there, a bunch of followers of Jesus, and one day they get a chance to hear something he's got to say to them. And this is the letter that they get read out in their congregation. We can read it. Well, we have read it, so let's have a look at it in detail. Wow. How would you feel getting a letter like that? Not too bright, eh? Have you ever got a bank statement, uh, you know, which when you look at it and you thought you had plenty of money in the bank, in fact, you were certain there was lots there, and then, but, that, but then some sneaky, you know, annual direct debit, you know, like the AA or someone like that, this is getting too close to comfort, you know, has taken money out of your bank account and you thought you had the money, but actually 
You don't ever had that kind of letter? Of course you haven't. You manage your finances, those of you who do banks, very well. It's like that, isn't it? Or maybe it's the way we felt a bit as a church, you know, when we, we discovered, you know, how that we thought we had loads of money in all kinds of, um, you know, accounts, which we did, but we re- then we discovered we couldn't use them unless it was for buildings. And then we discovered that actually we thought we had loads of money coming in, but actually we were spending far more than we were receiving. Do you remember that moment in about 2008, 2009? That kind of, oh, I thought we were okay, but maybe not. That's what it's like. And as usual, as we get into it, there's this brief description of Jesus at the beginning. The words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and so on. And uh, he's the one who's bringing this message. And we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. And as usual, it begins with, I know. He's the one who knows. And again, as we've seen in several of these letters... It's a kind of theme getting on here now is that he knows everything he's know, he looks at them and he sees and he's looking not so much at what they kind of say but what they do. He says, I know what you do. I know your works. And we've thought, haven't we? This is the third of these letters where we've, we, we've seen the point that actually if you really want to know what someone believes, you don't look at what they say but you look at what they do. That's how we really know if we really believe it. Does it affect our life? And it, it's a tough letter. It really is tough love. But it is love, as we shall see. This isn't Jesus just having a go. He wants to bring them to a better place. He wants them to know something more. He wants them to come back from the place they're in. So what is it that's going on? There's a problem. What does Jesus say he knows from their behavior? He says, look, this is what I know. He says, look, you have a reputation. There it is. Verse 1. You have a reputation, or in the original, you have a name. We talk about having a good name. He says, you've got a good name. You've got a reputation for being alive. But actually, you're dead. Or if we look into the details, he says, you're almost dead. So that's why there's hope, as we shall see. You see, they thought they were one thing. But in fact, they were something quite different. They thought they were one thing, but really they weren't. And Jesus says, you're not what you think. You're living on your reputation. In other words, they were hypocrites. That's the, the Bible word for it. Now, you know, I'm not saying that they were hypocrites in the sense that they did it deliberately. I'm sure they didn't go around deliberately pretending to be something they weren't. No, that wasn't it at all. Maybe things are just gradually their lives had just stopped matching what they believed, just gradually. Like the city they lived in, like, uh, like the city of Sardis, they were relying on their old glory days. You know, the old glory days that Sardis, they, Sardis was absolutely convinced as a city they'd get that bid in AD 26 for Caesar's uh, temple. They didn't, because everyone knew, yeah, Sardis, you were great once, but hey, you know, you're living on it. It's funny, isn't it, how the culture of the place that you're in can affect your kind of makeup. I wonder how much the culture of our city affects us and the other churches in this city. Just worth thinking about. Living on reputation. Now, can we be like that? Can we live on a reputation but not have the reality? Well, Jesus is calling us to say, well, careful. Is that possible? We could think about the Western church in the world. 
The Western church that's seen so much. The church in Europe that's been so fantastic in the past, that sent so many missionaries, that changed the whole nature of of, of society. The church in this country, the church in North America, the church on mainland Europe and so on. Uh, It's so much. And yet now, where is it? We may have so much money, so much history, but so little of that power and life that we see in other parts of the world church. You go to another part of the world and you find believers there and you say, whoa, whoa. You know, they can teach us so much if we're humble enough to admit it. Because the, because the life they know, the life they're sharing is real. Now let's think about what about us? What about Portsmouth Church? Do we have a reputation? What kind of reputation do we have? Well, won't do a, a, a survey. It probably depends who you ask and when you ask them. Just like any other church in the city. But what about the reputation we give ourselves? We see how do we, how do we give ourselves a reputation? Well, different ways. We might, you know, look on our website. Say, what really matters to us as a church? You'll find our core values up there. Christ the center, Bible teaching, learning, Bible learning, caring for one another, mission here, mission there, depending on God in prayer. That's the reputation we give ourselves. Now, now I check the website, and to be fair, we say that's what we hope, that's what we aspire to be. Um, Same here in this little leaflet. Here it is, the same. Our vision and our values. Think about the last one, dependence on God in prayer. Let me share something with you. Now, I'm just going to do this very gently, I hope. (laughs) Some people may be wondering, it was a great Kaylee, fantastic. I heard all about it. It's a great idea. I think we had the idea as a team. Uh, I didn't make the Kaylee. Some of you may have noticed, some of you didn't, and that's fine. Glad you didn't. Hope you didn't in some ways, in one sense. Why wasn't I there? Uh, people ask Mary and Steph and James and so on. And there, were, I, there were a few options why I might not have been at the Cayley. You'll see why I'm going, where I'm going with this in a minute. Some people may have thought, oh, we must have been prepping for the Sunday sermon. And that might also, that, well, it kind of was true, although I didn't have to do that. I could have finished it earlier. Some people also who know me better <laughs> know that I may have been having trouble with my joints and so dancing at a Kaylee wasn't something that I do easily and that would also be true. Some people who know me really, really well, like my family and those who work with me, uh, will know that I can get quite grumpy and discouraged and despairing at times and they might have thought, oh, John's, John's just on one of his kind of down, <laughs> down times. Uh, and that could have been true. All of those three things, I have to confess, could have been true about me. But actually, there was another reason I wasn't there. I wanted to, to make a point, really. And, uh, I, and I, I'm going to share it with you. Um, but please don't, you know, don't, I don't want you to take it the wrong way, please. But I didn't come because I wanted to make a point. I, I didn't need to, I didn't have to go. It was brilliantly organized by Sim and, and, and the guys who organized it. But I knew it was going to be really good. I didn't come because I thought, well, okay, I'm going to make a point. I'm going to treat coming together for a great time and good fun the way we as a church mostly treat coming together to pray. Now, don't be 
guilty. Don't be discouraged. Don't be hit hard. There, you know, I was in a bit of a dilemma because the, I made the point. And then when I shared it with some people, they kind of go, <gasps> and I realized that if I put it on Facebook, then all my friends will, you know, see me, you know, slagging off the church and, and all your friends. And you'd be thinking, oh, no, you know, we just have a great Katie. And he goes and ruins it all by, you know, saying, and I don't want any. So please don't be guilty. Please, you know, don't be defensive. Please don't feel bad about it. But I just wanted to make that simple point, and I've waited till now with the advice of others before I did so. Because I hope we have loads more Kayleys. I hope we have lots more time to spend having fun together. And the next time we have one, if I'm not ill, I will be there. So I'm not making a point about that. But I just want us to think for a moment or two in the, maybe the next few weeks, maybe leading up to Easter, to have a conversation with each other. Because it is us. It's not you, it's not me, it's all of us. We're all in this together. Would I go to prayer times if I, it wasn't my job? I honestly don't know. Possibly not. Not certainly because perhaps in the way that I do now. So it's not you, it's not some people in Portsmouth Church, it's us, it's all of us. Think like this letter. Think together. Have a conversation. Should we do something different about the way we gather to pray? Is it that it's just too much, you know, it's the wrong time or it's the wrong format or it's just too difficult? Um, you know, we could think about our monthly prayer gatherings. But it also applies to things like, you know, last, last year, the people put all that effort, huge amount of effort into the prayer stations all around the church building. Remember that in the week leading up to Easter. And there were, to be honest, very few people came. So, you know, but, but just talking to house groups as leaders, pray about it, ask the Lord. Let's just spend a few weeks having a conversation without being negative and, you know, threatened and guilty and bad. Because prayer, you know, that's, that's no reason to, 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 to pray or do anything out of guilt. We want to do it out of joy, out of love, and out of uh, a full heart. And, and maybe let's have some honest sharing and uh, talking about it. In your house group, we'll probably refer refer at the leaders morning and perhaps at the forum but you know let's ask this bigger question too do we need to be careful that we're not like sardis and have a reputation whether from others or one we give ourselves that we uh, aren't living up to so enough of that let's move on and see what jesus has to say to the church at sardis and what he might he be saying to us? If you're thinking, yeah, I perhaps I, you know, perhaps I, in my personal life, I, I'm, I'm not perhaps quite there. I'm living on my past reputation. Well, let's hear what Jesus will say to us to help us to be different, to change. Here's the first thing he says. Wake up. Twice he says at first two and three. Because what Jesus is saying is, look, guys, you're, you're, like, you're like those people were up on the citadel. You remember, you know, when the, back in your history, when the, the, the Greeks came in and got, got there, you were just asleep, not realizing the situation. Or similarly, uh, in your history, when the Persians pretty much did a similar thing. He's saying, wake up. Be aware of the danger. Sometimes we need to just wake up to it. It's kind of the, why it's sometimes good to make points, um, you know, to try and get it across to one another. But what Jesus is saying to them is two things as they wake up. He's saying, look, he said, there's still time. He says to them, look, it's about to die. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete 
in the sight of my God. First thing he says, look, it's not all gone. It's not, you know, you're not dead yet. You know, there's stuff that, that's there. There's time to wake up. There's time to change. There's time for a whole kind of different way of being. It's a, it's a as we said before, repentance is, is not a, a down thing. The call to, to repent or the call to, it's a call to change. And it's saying change is possible. The Lord can help us with that. We can know what it's like to be different. So Jesus is saying, there's still time. It's about to die. It hasn't yet died. It's a bit like someone, you know, when, when someone's really ill, you, know, you see it, you always see it on films. I don't know whether this happens in reality. Maybe I should ask a medic. But, you know, when someone's really, really sick at the side of the road, you know, their friend says, stay with me. You know, that, that kind of, stay with me. Don't, don't, don't fall asleep. Stay there. You know, if you, if you go to sleep, I'm going to lose you. And it's, it seems to me as if Jesus kind of said, stay with me, stay with me. There's, there's still life. Wake up. Don't go to sleep. Don't let it go. It's possible to come back from the crisis is the strong message of this, this letter, which is, as you may have noticed, actually one of the hardest of the letters of the seven letters. This is the one that is most difficult, perhaps with the exception of Laodicea, the last one. But I actually think this, in some ways, is a tougher letter than the letter to the the church at Laodicea, which we'll get to in two Sundays' time. But secondly, Jesus says, wake up. He says, wake up because um, there's something to to get back to. I'm not getting a signal. Oh, yes, thanks. There's something to get back to. Here's that idea of, he says, your deeds are not complete in the sight of my God. He's saying, look, you know, they're not fulfilled, it means. He's saying... They started, he says, Sardis, you, as a church, you started so well. Things were going so great, but you've just, you know, you're falling asleep. And, and there's something to go back to. There is something that remains. You can get on. It can be strengthened. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, here's the thing. Do we need that kind of wake-up call in our lives? It's serious. Don't let it go. You started with Jesus all those kind of intentions, that beginning, then we shall see in a minute, that you had, you can get back to it. This might be in your personal life of following Jesus as a believer. It might be that you're on the road towards faith and you've kind of given up looking or you're, you're kind of sitting there halfway on the road but not quite you know, sure whether to, to you know, really say, Lord, I want you, Jesus, to be my Lord and my Savior. Or it could be in our serving It could be in our relationships. It could be in our house group. It could be in our church together. But do we need that kind of wake-up call? Can we just vaguely hear, like Jesus the paramedic, saying, stay with me? If we do, let's respond to that. Don't sleep on. So Jesus tells them, first of all, to wake up. Then he tells them to remember, verse 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember, therefore... What you have received and heard. What you have received and heard. Hold on to that, says Jesus. Obey it. Don't let it go. Jesus tells them they have a chance to respond, he says, before he intervenes. He says, if you don't wake up, then I'm going to come to you. And in these letters we see this. And he's not talking about the second coming, I don't believe. He's talking about how he will come and intervene in their church. As you can look through these letters in Revelation, you see that theme. 
And Jesus does this. He comes to a church in a season or he maybe uh, you know, moves on something in our lives at a particular point in time. And we need to respond. We don't need to be dis- di- uh, di- uh, kind of um, surprised by that. You know, it will come at a time perhaps we don't expect, like the thief in the night. He doesn't want them to be caught by surprise. So what is that going to mean for us then? So we're coming round. We're waking up. What do we do so that we're back on track? Well, remember what you received and heard. What you received and heard. What did you hear? Hearing is what? It's a word. You hear. What's Jesus talking about? Isn't he talking about God's word? About the message they heard? The message they responded to when they became believers? The message of good news, the message that Jesus has died, that we can know God through him. The truth about him, the truth about ourselves, the truth about how we get right with him. That message of good news. Uh, Jesus saying, remember that. Remember what you heard. Remember how you believe that and stick to it. Get back to it. Hold on to it. Maybe we just need to get back to reading it, some of us, or hearing it. There's a great phrase about the Bible and reading the Bible. Someone described it as this, it's getting in the way of God. And that doesn't mean you know, getting in God's way, you know, being a, a nuisance. It means getting in the way of you know, God in his ways. Whether we read it, hear it, come to church, hear wherever you, is you go. But that sense of being in a place where we, we're back to the gospel, back to the word again. There's life there. Get back to that place where you were when you found him or perhaps he found you when you came to know the Lord. This isn't the first time in these letters when Jesus has said that to a church, is it? But what had they received? What do you receive when you become a believer? What do we receive when our life in Jesus begins? What is it that gives us that new life in him? It's the Holy Spirit, God in our lives, in the person of the Holy Spirit, coming into our experience, bringing the truth about Jesus alive in us, enabling us to live for him and to honor him and to glorify him. And look at the picture. Who is, it, the Jesus, who is the Jesus who's speaking there in verse 1? How does he describe himself? He says he holds the seven spirits. And we've seen from chapter 1 that that's not, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The NIV translates, translates it sevenfold spirit. That in itself is a reference to Isaiah 11, if you're interested, where there's a phrase about how the, the Messiah is going to be anointed with the Spirit. And there's seven aspects of the Holy Spirit kind of in that verse in Isaiah 11. But, but here Jesus is saying he has the Holy Spirit in his hands. He has the seven stars. We know from what are the seven stars there, the seven churches. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has the churches and the Spirit in my hands. John Stott says it's almost like maybe Jesus is saying he's going to kind of, if he's got one in one hand and one in the other, it's only a picture. You know, it's a picture of, of what Jesus, can, you know, what he can give and bring. Is you know, almost like he brings the churches and the Spirit together. So we need, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our church, filling us. We need to be expecting and looking and praying for God to be at work, leading us, pointing us to Jesus, enabling us to worship God's power. So remember, says Jesus, hold on to what you received, the Holy Spirit, when you became a believer. You need to continue in that. We need to ask, have we grieved the Holy Spirit? 
the sin in our life got in the way of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives? Have we quenched him? As another biblical phrase, have we, you know, with our attitude or, or maybe even our, our feeling that I don't want any of this more supernatural stuff, have we kind of put out the Spirit's fire that he longs to bring into our experience? The Bible talks about that. Where are we with that? We need the Spirit. Get back to a place where he's working again in your life. We talk about being dependent on God. We need God's Spirit. Prayer is the pipeline of that. There is no life without the Holy Spirit, no Christian spiritual life, without him bringing Jesus into our lives individually and together. Without him, without the Spirit at work, we are dead. We have a reputation and no life. Do you remember back in chapter 1 of Revelation in the vision, John had Jesus put his hand on John, who was terrified at this vision of Jesus. And it says, I, it almost, it says, I was at his feet, chapter 1, verse 17. It's on the same page if you're uh, in this version. I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first one and the last We need that hand of Jesus on our lives, don't we? Telling us, don't be afraid. (laughs) I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. We need that personal touch. And it may be that reassuring uh, word from Christ again. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Keep walking with me. Come back to me. Carry on. Don't be scared of what the Holy Spirit might do in, in, in your life. It might be that kind of reassurance. Or it could be, I have this vision of going back to the paramedic. It could be like saying, clear, you know, and a, and a, and a sudden kind of influx of the Spirit into our life. I don't know. It's up to him. He can work either way and does. But the key thing, we need the Word and the Spirit. What we heard and what we received And we need to remember that and hold on and keep going. Last thing. Jesus says, repent. Now, as we saw last week, repentance is this opportunity to turn around, to go back and to find real change. What's involved in that? Well, Jesus uses a picture, doesn't he, here? He talks about repent. um, And then he says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, they will walk with me dressed in white, and so on. Now Sardis, one of the uh, sources of Sardis's wealth was uh, textiles, actually. It, had, it used to kind of process a load of sheep in the Phrygian, the area called Phrygia, all around it, and sheep, you know, like, a bit like the Cotswolds in the old days, you know. Uh, there were lots of sheep nearby, lots of shepherds, and the, all the wool got processed and stuff in Sardis. That was one of its sources of wealth. So they all knew about textile and they knew about fashions. In fact, um, clothes really mattered there. I read in one place, and I've been trying to confirm it, but anyway, if it's true, it's good. But I read that you could uh, actually lose your citizenship in Sardis, you know, if you're a Roman citizen, and you wore the Roman toga, and it was particularly manky, and it was a, you know, a, an ongoing offense, presumably, you could be taken out of the register of citizens in the city. That's how much, you know, fashion mattered to those guys. Glad they don't do that these days, eh, as they say. I'm talking about myself now. You're all great. I don't know. I wear the same jacket every, every week. I'm all right. I've got a uniform. So, you know what I mean. Uh, it was important. 
Jesus is saying that those, there are those in Sardis who have not got dirty. There are those who are, have walked with him, those who are alive. And he's saying to them, those people, or he's saying to the church as a whole, he said, if you overcome, if you repent, if you come back, you'll be with, like those people, you will walk with me. Even though your clothes may have got really manky, that's okay. That can be, they can be cleaned. That will be changed. You can walk with me in fresh clothes. That's a great picture of what it is to be a believer, isn't it? To be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And that's the promise. Get on track. And there's also a reference here to something else. that, uh, And I have checked this in more than one source. Uh, so this is true. That in the ancient world... Again, Roman towns had a, a book that recorded all the citizens, all the Roman citizens. I'm not sure about the slaves and so on. But the, the, the citizens of the town were recorded in a book. And when they died, they would you know, be crossed out of the book. Some people call it the book of the living. And I think it's true in other ancient cities as well. As it happens, Sardis had a huge and impressive cemetery that went back years. It was seven miles down the road. It's in a place called Bin Tepe today. Uh, it, it, was a, it was called a necropolis, a cemetery. It was a huge place. And so they were kind of aware of these things. Jesus says to them, look, there's a book where your name will stay beyond death. So I'm not going to take your book out. If you walk with me, if you're my people, if you walk with me in white, then you die. Your name's not going to be struck out like it is when you die and it's struck out of the citizen's register in, in uh, Sardis. Oh no, it's there with me for good. It's another way of saying nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even death. And Jesus tells them that they, although they, they had a name for being alive, he says, come back. Or stay with me, and your name is there forever. And he said, you will, uh, he said, I will acknowledge their name before my Father. That's what he said to the disciples, wasn't it? If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. That's the only way our name matters. It's the only way our name, our reputation means zip. <laughs> the only thing that matters is that sense of security and relationship with Christ that we know him, that we're walking with him in the white robes that he gives us. And verse 2 and verse 5 talk about your deeds in the sight of God. I'm acknowledge your name before my Father, says Jesus. That's what really matters. It's in the sight of God that we live. We live our lives before him, the living God. Hard to get our heads around that in our culture where nobody, you know, God is kind of, people aren't aware of God much. Jesus said, we live our lives in the sight of God. I know your deeds in the sight of God. He says, I know one day I will acknowledge your name before God. Don't swallow the culture stuff uh, about there being no God to answer to. Jesus says, that's not true. There's another way of understanding it. So then, do we get that? Do we realize that that's all that matters? And if so, how is it going to show us? So finally, let's go back a bit. Over it. What does Jesus say to, to these uh, believers? What does he say to us? Let's wake up. Let's wake up. Let's reconnect with the word and the spirit. Let's remember. That, and remember isn't just remembering a fact, but getting back into the place where the word and the spirit 
are at work in our lives, in our church community. Let's repent. Get back to walking with Jesus in clean clothes. That's a great image, that. Walking with me, says Jesus. Because what it's telling us is that he's with us. He helps us. We walk with him. Where do we get these white clothes? Do we have to try and, try and get it all ourselves? No, it's a gift. The gospel is a gift. Jesus says, I give you eternal life. He died for us. The gospel is about a welcome he gives us. The gospel is about a life he gives us in the spirit. So he's not telling them, you know, you know slapping them around the face and trying to try and do better. No, he's saying, no, walk with me. I've done it for you. I walk with you. Come back. Wake up. Repent. Remember. And let's walk with Jesus for his glory in the clothes that he gives us.